Hi, everybody. I'm Patricia Duff, and welcome to The Common Good. With the dramatic and hugely significant revelations of the January 6th hearings, we've been watching the first draft of recent history about the assault on the Capitol by rioters and the attempted assault on our democracy and a free and fair election. It's a very stark reminder of how fragile our democracy is and why our discussion today is so important. We're thrilled to welcome our members from the Common Good today, and we're all, we also welcome supporters of one of our great historic sites of our democracy, Federal Hall. So welcome to all of you as well. At the Common Good, we work to share with you sharp and informative discussions on the critical issues of the day with the highest caliber thought leaders and experts. And tonight, that includes our tremendous speaker and our moderator. Please welcome Yasha Monk. Yasha is one of the world's leading experts on democracy and the rise of populism. We hosted Monk for his last book, The People Versus Democracy, which was recognized as a best book of 2018 by the Financial Times and other publications. His latest book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. It's a must read and I hope you'll buy it. He's an associate professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, among other titles. Thank you so much, Yasha. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Really look forward to this. And to lead the conversation, we're thrilled to welcome Richard Wolf back uh, again also. He's the award-winning journalist who covered the entire length of Barack Obama's presidential campaign for Newsweek magazine and penned the New York Times bestseller, Renegade, The Making of a President and Revival. Before Newsweek, Wolf served as Deputy Bureau Chief, U.S. Diplomatic Correspondent and Senior Journalist at the Financial Times. He currently writes a twice-weekly column for The Guardian and is a political analyst for MSNBC. Thank you so much for coming back. And now I'm going to pass the conversation over to you, Richard. Thank you so much. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you all uh, at The Common Good and all of you for uh, joining us today for what is a vital conversation. And thank you, Yasha, for writing this fantastic book. But Yasha, before we get into the big concepts piece of this, plunge into the headlines right now. January 6th hearings are happening, clearly making a very detailed case about the threat to democracy that was presented both at the time, but also the key actors behind that, notably, of course, former President Trump. At the same time, the news overnight is that a number of officials have been at least nominated to run in in the fall who deny the facts of the election uh, of two years ago and have signed up to the big lie and are, you could argue, pretty convincingly, by definition, anti-democratic themselves. So how do we explain these two divergent trends in the discourse and the news right now as we speak this week? Yeah, thank you. That's 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 a great and really important question. Let, let me say a few things. The first is that I think the hearings are getting right the focus on what actually mattered about January 6th. Um, it's shocking that, uh, you know, a mob of 10,000 or so people was protesting and that a large number of them breached the capital. But I think that isn't what was truly significant about January 6th. Um, the fact that in a big country of over 300 million people, there is, you know, 10 or 20 or 30,000 crazy people who are willing to go and storm the Capitol. Isn't that surprising? And with decent security, it wouldn't have happened. What is significant about it is that they had the backing of the outgoing president of the United States and of a whole set of other 
uh, influential and powerful people in the country. And that, I think, helps us understand what the threat for 2024 is. There's been a lot of sort of fashionable talk about civil war and so on. And I think there's some very outside chance of an actual civil war, a very small but very worrying chance. Um, but by and large, that is not what I worry about for the coming years, because these wars, sort of, these books sort of play a little fast and loose with their definition. Really what they mean is clashes and riots and, uh, you know, some real forms of political violence, all of which is worrying, but doesn't add up to what we tend to think about in terms of civil war. The real danger is that you will have, say, Joe Biden win the popular vote in a state like Arizona. I'm a newly uh, nominated uh, Secretary of State and Governor of Arizona, if they win the election in 2022, saying, hey, actually, there was some form of malfeasance, and we're going to send a slate of electors to Congress that's going to vote for the Republican candidate, most likely Donald Trump, even though a majority of people in Arizona uh, voted for Joe Biden. And that would put us in a really unprecedented uh, constitutional crisis, opening the possibility either that Donald Trump takes power, even though he should not be taking power according to the outcome of a vote, or that there's a genuine split in loyalties in the institutions about who gets to be the legitimate commander-in-chief. That is the huge worry that we have for 2024. Um, now, you know, why is that? Um, it has a lot to do with the primary system. Um, I, I'm actually convinced that most Americans do not like Donald Trump, believe that Donald Trump is out of the political mainstream. But of course, it's not most Americans who determine who Republican candidates are. It is, you know, two or three or four or five percent of the voting public who are enough uh, for a candidate to win nomination in the primaries. And that is pushing our political parties, particularly the Republican Party, but not only the Republican Party, into the extremes um, and is presenting most voters with a choice that they really deeply dislike. So, so that is one of the institutional problems that we have at the moment. So your book talks about the, the great experiment. Let's just sort of unpack that a little bit and say, what was the experiment? And is it the same experiment today that it was when it was conceived? Yeah, so the, the, the term the great experiment is in a way of throwback to the great experiment of the American Republic, which really was a great experiment because... Uh, it's easy to see with the benefit of hindsight um, that it could work, at least for a very long time. But when you go back to the late 18th century and you look around, there really wasn't any example of a large-scale republic which successfully had managed to rule itself. Nearly every attempt at self-government had miserably failed, um, failed, by the way, in ways that feel reminiscent now because they ended up being polarized between two uh, big factions uh, that deeply hated each other and that were willing to destroy the system in order to be in charge. Now, what we have today uh, is a new great experiment uh, because uh, for most of the existence of the American Republic, uh, we were not a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracy that actually treated its members as equals. We were very diverse from the founding, um, but of course the country gave uh, very significant rights and privileges uh, to one ethnic and religious group um, and excluded other groups uh, up to the most extreme ways of uh, chattel slavery and so on. And something similar is true in many other democracies. So in Germany, where I was born and raised, um, the country was incredibly homogeneous after World War II because of the Holocaust and the genocides and injustices of the first half of the 20th century. So they did not have a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracy that treated its members as equal, simply because it was not particularly diverse. 
Um, so, so what's new about this uh, political moment, not just in the United States, but in many democracies around the world, is uh, having this huge amount of ethnic and religious diversity and trying to figure out how we can live together productively while treating each other as equals. That is the great experiment of the 21st century. So the founding fathers didn't much like democracy. I mean, they, they made that pretty clear in the in the Federalist Papers, and they and, and nor did the classical thinkers either. They thought it was too easily corrupted and and was only one step away from tyranny. Looking back, where we are today, weren't they sort of right that inevitably the mob was going to take over in a real democracy, and therefore they had this electoral college that would protect us from real democracy. And it would be a nice sort of cardinal's council of rich white landowning men who could find some other George Washington. I mean, they didn't really buy into this great experiment as we understand it, did they? I, I not to stereotype you, Richard, but I always love speaking to British journalists because they always have something slightly mischievous, you know, they always try to push you a little bit in a fun way. Um, uh, look, no, I, I, I don't agree. I mean, what they meant by democracy um, and it is true that they very clearly uh, rejected the idea of democracy. But what they meant by democracy is direct democracy, right? What they meant is um, people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, when they talk about self-government, they really mean everybody comes together in one assembly and speak in one voice. And often to make that happen, they actually shouldn't have the freedoms that we now enjoy because uh, the only way to make that work is for uh, the common will to sort of express itself in unison, you know, so really uh, it's just people affirming an undifferentiated will of, of, of the masses that, that, that often was um, envisaged in that form of direct democracy. And what they said is, no, 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 we need representative government, right? We need a system of government where we vote for the people who go and debate together and don't just represent the interests of people, but actually try to strive for uh, uh, accomplishing what the name of this organization is, the common good, the common good, the public good was an absolutely crucial uh, concept to the framers that we don't talk about very often today. So I, I would reject the idea that they were anti-democratic in the sense that we talk about uh, democracy. They were anti-direct democracy, and we don't have a direct democracy today either. Now, where I do think they... Um, didn't anticipate the effect of some of their political institutions is that the goal precisely was to maximize the number of factions, right? They, they, they said all of these republics were destroyed because these two factions ended up fighting against each other. If you think of Romeo and Juliet, the, the Montagues and the Capulets, there wasn't a democracy actually, but, but that's the way in which the Italian city-states, including the republics of the Middle Ages, ended up falling apart because you had these warring factions, these warring tribes. And so what Federalist 10 says is, rather than trying to deal with this problem in the natural, in the obvious way, by getting rid of factions, that's not possible. That's only possible if we destroy liberty. We want to have lots and lots of factions, because we have lots and lots of factions where nobody thinks that they're going to be able to be in charge, and we all agree to be bound by the same sort of rules. That worked pretty well on religion. Actually, in America, there was never a religious denomination that was so majoritarian that they felt they could completely impose their views on everybody else. So actually, on that count, we've done relatively well. What the framers didn't anticipate is that their political institutions, in particular, first past the post, the majoritarian political system within districts, would give rise to two political parties. 
and that mm -hmm. these two political parties could actually become these sort of super factions uh, that are able to tear the country apart in that way. And so I think if we look for an area where the framers didn't anticipate the result of their actions, it is the, the, the two-party system rather than uh, a denial of democracy. But they, they, they didn't anticipate as well that the Electoral College would collapse pretty quickly, right? That it would descend into corrupt, you know, favor trading and buying and selling, which was then reformed. So the Electoral College was broken pretty quickly in the system. Yeah, I mean, I know I, I'm not sure. Sort of, it sounds like you, you you're a fan of the old style of the electoral college or, or something like that. I and mean, I, I sort of, of all of the institutions that we should reform, to me, the electoral college is a relatively easy call, both because I think it would be good for American politics if politicians didn't always play these games where we're trying to figure out, you know. I'm reading to win this state and this particular demographic group is crucial in this state and so on. I think the electoral college sort of drives that attempt, as Barack Obama once put it, to slice and dice the electorate. And I think that's a bad thing. Right. And of course, we can reform the electoral college, at least probably um, in, a, in a relatively straightforward way without a constitutional amendment, because uh, states have great leeway in how they decide who to send to the electoral college. And so they can uh, say, hey, we are going to send people to the Electoral College in accordance with the national uh, uh, vote winner, um, as right. long as enough other states do that as well. There's some questions about whether the Supreme Court will uphold this, but that's a way of sort of actually uh, uh, essentially demobilizing the Electoral College without having to change the Constitution. And so I think that's a perfectly sensible reform. I don't think it's going to completely change the dynamics of American politics. Some people have too much hope in that. Uh, but, but I think that makes sense because the original purpose of the Electoral College, to be these wise men who come together and make a reasoned choice, um, as you're saying, has gone out of a window in any case. So let's talk a little bit more about how you describe the, the ways diverse democracies, I think you describe them, uh, how they fall apart. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that fragmentation idea uh, of us splintering in so many different ways that it's a it's a fundamental existentialist challenge to to democracy. Describe what you mean by fragmentation in this context, since factionalism has been around forever. So first of all, let me let me talk perhaps about some of the basic drivers of why it's so difficult to build diverse democracies. And the first of them is just human nature. You know, I I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University. It's an incredibly diverse campus now. My students think of themselves as some of the most tolerant people in the world, and and in some ways they are. But when I have them debate whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, and then they play a little game against each other, the people who say that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate immediately against the people who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. And the people who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich discriminate against those who think that it is. Um, the great comedian Tom Lehrer once said, it's very important to love your fellow human beings. And there are some people who do not love a fellow human beings. And I hate people like that. So the lines along which we are able to start favoring the members of our own group and think that anybody who's not a member of our own group is really terrible, are ever shifting. Um, and it's very easy to fall into that trap. The second point, of course, is that in history, most of the time, uh, the kind of forms of group uh, identity, of group boundary that has driven terrible behavior was not as random as whether or not you think that a hot dog is a sandwich. Uh, it was not always, but very often along the lines of religion, of ethnicity, in terms of language or of nationality. Um, and uh, when you look at the worst crimes in human history, that is often 
what motivated those. So that uh, has given rise to one of the traditional ways in which diverse societies of all forms have fallen apart. And that's what I call fragmentation. I talk about free modes of failure for diverse uh, societies, fragmentation, anarchy, and domination. But fragmentation simply means that, um, you know, we decide in our society, but we're not citizens together of a polity that we want to make work, but rather as in Lebanon today, I'm completely defined by the fact that I'm a Maronite Christian or that I'm a Shia or that I'm a Sunni. My rights and obligations come to that. The kind of laws to which I'm subject uh, when it comes to marriage and divorce and education and a whole bunch of other things uh, come from that. And it really means that we, are, that we have great trouble cooperating on an effective set of state institutions, having solidarity with each other and so on. And so that's one of the dangers that we've historically seen in countries like Lebanon, but we also have to be on the guard against in diverse democracies from the United States to Britain to Germany and beyond. Yeah, this gets us into the, a, a space of uh, disinformation as well, right? If, if your fragmented identity keeps you separate from others, then what's to stop you from having a fragmented sense of reality and facts, news sources? I have a question, which is, is it inevitable that in a highly fragmented society, people are going to have what one famous Trump advisor called just an alternative set of facts? So it is interesting that when the internet was invented and uh, people were starting to realize to what extent it lowers the cost of communication, how much easier it makes it for people to speak to those who are very far away. The reasonable expectation of a lot of people was, hey, uh, a lot of people are going to use that technology to communicate with people who are very different from them, who are very far away, either literally or metaphysically, metaphorically, right? Um, you really disagree with me, well, let's have a debate, right, and talk about these things on the internet. Or, uh, you know, I don't really know much about people who live in Mali. Um, it was very difficult to communicate with them in the past. I could have sent a letter that took five weeks and was actually expensive. Now I can chat with them with great ease. And so a lot of people are going to do that. What we found, of course, is unfortunately the opposite, that most people, when they can costlessly communicate with billions of people around the world, seek out those who are most like, as much like them as possible, often along the lines of ethnicity or religion or sexuality and so on. And that has led to a great resurgence of uh, the importance of various kinds of identity markers and groups and a great uh, increase in the number of identity markers that can effectively um, reach the status of a group that's politically motivating. Uh, but are often on political lines as well, right? So vegans are much more radical because they can uh, just talk to other vegans um, and sort of talk each other into a tizzy about how evil vegetarians are. And so I do worry that uh, that makes it easier for relatively hermetically sealed uh, echo chambers to you know, have their own narratives about the world. And by the way, I worry about that with lots of communities out there. I also worry about that with my own friends and colleagues and so on. I think we ourselves can be guilty of constructing the narrative that's convenient for us as well. Um, Stephen Colbert in his first ever show on the Colbert Report had this great uh, phrase about truthiness. Uh, it's what feels true. And that was an attack on George W. Bush. But I have to say, when I look at some of the uh, great media institutions in this country that I used to love uh, reading and uh, when I look at some of the things that my own friends and colleagues say on social media, I sometimes feel they're guilty of truthiness as well. How do you think nationalism has changed in this current context of fragmentation? And how do we reconcile the two? More fragmented, but there seems to be a rise of nationalist leaders in many countries. 
It's interesting that some form of uh, patriotic sentiment has actually survived this age of fragmentation uh, quite strongly. I'm a German Jew, so nationalism has not come naturally to me. And when I went to college in, in England at the age of 18, I sort of hoped that we would uh, at some point uh, be able to overcome a lot of forms of group identity in general, and particular sort of forms of nationalism. But the last 20 or so years have made me a little bit more skeptical of that, because we see the force of an exclusionary form of nationalism in the United States under Trump, um, in India under Narendra Modi, in Hungary under Viktor Orban, and so many other places that I could mention uh, as well. And in fact, it seems to me that when reasonable people give up on the symbols of the nation, and on some healthy and inclusive form of patriotism, it actually ends up decaying. And, you know, fragmentation in social media doesn't make it decay. Rather, uh, the still very powerful symbolism of a nation can then be appropriated effectively uh, by the most extreme voices in our politics. So one of the things that I do in, in the latest book on The Great Experiment is actually to make a case for an inclusive patriotism. Um, I think of patriotism and nationalism as a half-domesticated beast. Um, mm -hmm. If we let it run wild, the worst kinds of people are going to exploit it for their own purposes. And we need to make it uh, useful for us. We need to always keep at the task of domesticating it. And a domesticated patriotism would take inspiration from civic values and the constitutional tradition in the American context. Um, uh, but also, I think, from an everyday cultural patriotism. I think also from a recognition but our countries are actually very diverse now, but most people um, have a real love for and connection to that culture, that you can have uh, an appreciation in a forward-looking, dynamic, and inclusive way for what the culture of the United States, or the culture of the United Kingdom, or the culture of France today is, um, which uh, gives due regard to the contributions of immigrants and uh, uh, different ethnic and religious groups. Uh, and which is actually optimistic about the future we can build together. I think you talk about the the power of the naturalization ceremony in this country in contrast to other countries. And as someone who has gone through that, I will happily testify that to myself. But talk, talk a little bit about what you see as being represented by that ceremony. There's sort of two things, as I was hinting at a moment ago, that to me uh, really stand at the heart of a healthy patriotism. So one is the civic tradition. Um, I became a citizen in the spring of 2017, a few months into Donald Trump's presidency. And so um, I took special pleasure and pride in uh, swearing to protect the laws and the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Part of the naturalization ceremony, there is uh, an allegiance to a greater set of ideals, which have never been fully realized in the United States, but which have guided us towards hopefully a slowly and slowly more perfect union. One of the things that made me proud to become an American is my love of the philosophically liberal principles on which this country, at least in theory, is built on the Bill of Rights, um, on uh, the basic individual freedoms that we enjoy. But I do also think that part of becoming a citizen of a country or part of what it is to love your country is also a love of uh, its everyday culture. If most people when we say we love America, don't think about the constitution because most people don't care that much about politics, right? Most people on a lovely day like today, it's wonderful how many presidents we have today, but most people aren't so crazy as to be sitting on a Zoom call talking about politics, but be out there enjoying the sun, right? 
Um, and by the way, if uh, uh, Australia or some other country adopted the United States Constitution word for word today, I wouldn't thereby become an Australian patriot, right? Because there's something about America that is specific to me. And so you can have uh, a love or an appreciation of many countries. We have a special regard for your country, uh, which comes from a love of its sights and sounds and smells and the cities and landscapes and its cultural scripts and even its silly elements like it's, you know, celebrities or you know tiktok stars and other things and so to me one part of what it means to become a citizen of a country is also an expression of that cultural patriotism of of, of being in a country where you feel at home as i do at this point in 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 new york city and as somebody who's lived in many different countries and loves many different countries i always tend to find that people underestimate how specific the country is right the united states is very different from the united kingdom despite its historic links and despite a shared language. Um, and even for America within itself, it's incredibly diverse, but is actually something to what it is to be an American. And I think there's nothing wrong with celebrating that cultural element of it either. It has to be forward-looking, it has to be inclusive. It's not sort of costume pageants that celebrate, uh, uh, you know, what people look like when we walked off the Mayflower over time or something like that. But I think that's an important element of, of a healthy patriotism today as well. Well, I'm glad you raised my old country because I, I did. I have to say that when I went through uh, uh, my naturalization ceremony, which was actually unexpectedly emotional for me, the federal judge who was presiding over the ceremony gave this really powerful speech where he said that he he was the son of an immigrant and that he his father had been a carpenter and used a hammer and here he was using a gavel. And then he flipped it around. He talked about how immigrants were at the heart of uh, American culture. And that he looked at all of us, new Americans, and said, you all are the heart and the soul of this country, which I thought at the time was a wonderful thing to say, but also entirely unthinkable in old Europe. There's not a single uh, naturalization process where any country in Europe, I think, would say to a new immigrant, you are the heart and soul of the country. There's an expectation that you could adapt to the ways of the new country, but not that the country generates some sort of energy and identity from the newcomers. So rather than just say that story and not frame a question, because it is important to frame a question, I would say, what does it mean for the culture if powerful people are actually anti-immigrant? Is it still the same democracy and the same culture when the discourse turns against immigrants? And as you know, the largest divide between left and right today is not on regulation or business or inflation, or, it's about immigration. That's the clearest indicator of which side of the political divide you're on. So is the culture today where you and I maybe think it is or value where it is? It's a great question. Let me, let me say a couple of things about that. I mean, one is that there's nothing more American than arriving in this country, integrating after 20 or 30 years, and when you or your children start to say, well, we were the right kind of immigrants, but the people coming in now are terrible. We need to close the door to them, right? If you go back to the Know Nothing Party, if you go back to the politics of the 1910s and the 1920s, there have always been these moments in American history when uh, American citizens, many of whom themselves were recent immigrants, uh, and all of whom had been immigrants at some point, um, started to say, uh, you know what, actually, we need to have less immigration. So um, to me, it is a betrayal of some of the uh, basic American values, but there's nothing surprising about it. And it's been a feature of American politics uh, uh, at intervals uh, for, for a very long time. You know, the other thing that, I, that, that I'd say is that 
uh, I agree with you that there's been a real shift in what the most important dividing line in our politics is. So, and that's not just true in the United States, it's true in many democracies. So 30 or 40 years ago, if you had to guess who somebody voted for, but you were not allowed to ask them for the party affiliation or perhaps even for demographic information. You were only allowed to ask them one question about public policy. Probably the best question you could have asked would have been something along the lines of, would you rather have a more generous welfare state and pay higher taxes? Or would you rather have a less generous welfare state and pay lower taxes? Um, and the people who said they wanted a more generous welfare state would have been on the left and they would vote for the Democratic Party or for Labour in Britain or for the Social Democrats in Germany. And the people who wanted less taxes would have been Republicans or Tories or Christian Democrats. Right? Um, today, I, I agree with you, a smarter question would be some kind of cultural question, perhaps about immigration or, or perhaps about any number of other uh, cultural issues that are dividing the, the, the country in deep ways. And, and that's a fundamental political shift. I am still struck, though, by the extent to which America is more pro-immigrant than virtually any other democracy, uh, the extent to which actually the share of uh, Americans who say that by and large uh, immigrants are enriching America is way higher than it is in Britain and even higher than it is in, in Germany or France. Um, and that includes a lot of Republicans. And so actually, um, I think there's sometimes a simple narrative of our politics, which divides whites versus people of color, um, or which uh, uh, sort of portrays the left as consistently pro-immigrant, the right as consistently anti-immigrant. And, and I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, it's not exactly the same topic, but we saw yesterday this fascinating special election in a county in Texas which is close to the border and which is believe, 85 percent Hispanic. Um, and they just voted for a Republican. Right. Um, and so we see that uh, actually, for example, a lot of Latinos, for all kinds of reasons, uh, want really strong restrictions on immigration as well. There was a fascinating uh, poll a few years ago, which found that a majority of respondents favored a, a border on the southern, uh, uh, sorry, a wall on the southern border of their country. That poll was taken in Mexico because the majority of Mexicans said, we don't want people from El Salvador and Guatemala and so on coming into our country, right? So, so, so the, both the nature of how Americans think about immigration is complicated. Uh, a lot of Americans are for strong border controls and for some border controls that are very cruel in my mind, um, uh, while also savoring the contributions of immigrants. And that includes a lot of people who are themselves Hispanic, for example. I don't disagree with the framing of your question, but I think it's important to uh, point towards the ways in which uh, our narrative can be a little bit simplistic sometimes. I'd love to ask about illiberal democracies. You, your sort of model of democracy is a liberal one, but of course we're seeing countries like Hungary where there's the trappings of democracy, but fundamental erosion of independent courts, free press, um, opposition parties, how much has that trend continued, do you think? How much is it in maybe some kind of stasis or reverse because of Trump or, or the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? It is, is, there a, is there a trend there? Is there a model? Um, what's, your, what's your take on illiberal democracies that are only half a step away from autocracy? Yeah, so we've seen, I mean, this is uh, primarily the topic of my last book, The People Versus Democracy, uh, this rise of authoritarian populists, um, uh, you know, in virtually every developed democracy in the world. They didn't win in virtually every developed democracy, but they won in a lot of them. 
and they're not present in the politics of virtually every single one. Um, and we've also seen that when these kinds of populist politicians, politicians who say that they and they alone represent the people and that anybody who disagrees with them is by virtue of that fact illegitimate, um, when they are able to win power, they do often turn uh, liberal democracies, or if you prefer that uh, uh, phraseology, uh, democratic republics, into illiberal democracies, into political systems in which one head of government concentrates so much power in their own hands that they're no longer really subject to the checks and balances exercised by independent institutions. And in some places, you get to the point, as we are now in Turkey or Venezuela, for example, at which a democratically elected head of government can no longer be removed from office by democratic means. So the question then is, um, you know, after years in which these political figures rose very, very quickly, uh, have you reached peak populism? I, I want to say a couple of things about that. The first is that in a way that's unsurprising. I mean, you know, if you go from not being in power anywhere to being in power uh, at one point in the three most populist democracies in the world, in India and in Brazil and in the United States, well, it's hard to keep rising, right? It's more likely that you've peaked and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come down. The second thing to say is that I think we are seeing some uh, hopeful signs that these populists start to struggle once they've been in office for a long time because they uh, make all of these huge promises to get into office. They say they're going to transform the world, make everything better. And the only reason why you've had problems so far is if the elite is terrible and corrupt and once I'm going to come in, everything will be better. And of course, they... Uh, fail to live up on those huge promises. And eventually people do see that and they get fed up with a new set of rulers as well. The election 2020 was a huge achievement. It's easy to forget that given how dire our politics looks right now, but it is rare for a democratic electorate to be able to uh, vote out an authoritarian populist after only one term in office. So actually it was a very, very heartening sign. We are seeing uh, some other signs of strength of moderate candidates, uh, or at least weakness of populist candidates. Um, in the German elections relatively recently, in the French elections where Marine Le Pen was worryingly strong, but which Macron nevertheless survived, in uh, the declining star of somebody like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. But we are also seeing real uh, signs of a staying power, right? Uh, uh, right now, if I had to guess who the most likely a uh, winner of an ex-presidential election in the United States is it's probably Donald Trump or one of his allies. In India, Narendra Modi continues to undermine the uh, institutions of the world's most populous democracies and is very firmly in the saddle. In Hungary, Viktor Orban was uh, resoundingly re-elected, an election that wasn't entirely free and fair, but in which he clearly did uh, sustain the support of a huge number of people. Recep Erdogan in Turkey is not going anywhere. And Vladimir Putin... Uh, of course, is still very much in the saddle as well. And so uh, I think in a way we have reached populism just because it's hard to go further than the populists were in 2018 or 2019. Um, but it certainly is too early to stop worrying about the way in which we're undermining democracy. If Facebook and Twitter disappeared tomorrow, would fragmentation dissipate and a democracy be in a better place? I mean, my life would be better, in a better place if all of our social media platforms transform. And I feel like a lot of people feel like that. So let's hope it somehow happens. Look, I think that these platforms certainly uh, deepened 
uh, the phenomenon we're talking about. I was just writing for The Atlantic uh, about a new study on polarization. And we see that the United States has polarized more than just about any other country in the world in the last decades. But the world average has really gone up strongly as well. And when did that trend start? In about 2004. So right when a lot of countries were starting to get the internet when social media really was taking off. Uh, I don't think that's entirely a coincidence. At the same time, a lot of the damage is now done, right? A lot of our political institutions have become so polarized. Uh, a lot of our media landscape has become so polarized. Uh, a lot of the distrust has already been put in place that if social media platforms disappear tomorrow, we might not go back uh, to where we were 20 years ago. Did social media speed up this transformation and make it worse? Probably yes. Um, if in some difficult to think through hypothetical scenario, these things just went poof tomorrow and disappeared. And I should stress that your book is fundamentally optimistic in spite of the nature of my questioning. So uh, let's open it up to some questions. Jerry, over to you, your question, please. Thank you. And thank you both for a very provocative uh, discussion. And I must say that uh, each of you talking about your naturalization experience is very inspiring. We do have as part of our culture, uh, an emphasis on the rule of law. And I wanna take us back to the beginning of the conversation when we talk about January 6th. So let's assume for a second that the attorney general decides to indict the former president. Are you worried that that might lead to moving into the territory of a banana republic? where uh, the next administration will go tip the tat and will start arresting uh, former opponents. Very, very different than the way we've conducted ourselves for 230 years, but similar to other countries uh, in the world. What do you think about that? So look, a, yes, I'm very worried about that. Um, you don't want to be in a place where you have to prosecute former officials because it will always lead a bad taste in the mouth. It'll always lead leave the fear that this is, uh, you know, what Donald Trump promised to do in 2016 coming true, which is lock her up, right? And you have countries in which that is a completely normal part of it. So I think that the Attorney General should be very careful about whether or not to indict Donald Trump. And by the way, I think that the only way to really get rid of Donald Trump in a significant way, because there's also his son running around, there's also all kinds of other imitators, is to keep defeating him in the ballot box. And the best way to do that is for Democrats to run good campaigns and get back in the mainstream of American culture and politics. Having said all of that, if it is indeed clear that Donald Trump committed crimes, then we need to prosecute him for that, right? So I don't think that any of the reasons I just stated for being very worried about this um, are such that if it is evident that he committed crimes, we shouldn't try to prosecute him for those, obviously uh, respecting all of the a very careful uh, institutions of due process uh, to which every American citizen, including Donald Trump, I don't know enough about the specific laws of this case to know whether or not Donald Trump has broken those laws. Um, in a way, I hope that he hasn't, um, because I think it will be better for our republic if there isn't a need to um, indict him. And if uh, we manage to defeat him in 2024, as we did in 2020 at the ballot box, um, but I don't think that the Attorney General should desist from prosecuting him if the facts of the matter are really clear um, because of the fear of those possible consequences. Thank you, Jerry, for the question. Uh, David Kemp, you have a question about Hitler's rise to power. We may as well do that early in the Q&A. Well, while Hitler wasn't 
elected per se. He was appointed chancellor in a normal political process and then maintained power through the big lie of uh, propaganda. Maybe that's extreme, but do you see any any parallels with the sort of the lies that are being perpetrated through the media and other means? Yeah, I think there's always important parallels between different historical situations. And I can certainly see parallels in the sense that uh, often the enemies of democracy uh, can be empowered by having significant popular support. As you were saying, Hitler never won a democratic election outright, but he certainly imposed himself on the old German elite in part by having a very large faction of the vote. And so uh, they felt they needed to deal with him somehow and did it in a in, in a very short-sighted manner. And I think certainly uh, you can find parallels between his use of propaganda and the use of propaganda that a number of politicians around the world, including in the United States, uh, make today. At the same time, I think it's really important to be clear in the terms we're using, and especially negative terms uh, sometimes give rise to the temptation to use them overly broadly because you want to signal how much you dislike something. And so it's become very fashionable to call Trump and his movement fascist over the last few years. And I think for a number of important reasons, that is not a helpful parallel. Fascist movements are totalitarian in character. So one of the things they do is to really try to organize the whole of society around support for uh, uh, intricate political ideology. Um, I cannot imagine that Donald Trump would do that, even if he properly won power and concentrated power in his own hands. He might uh, send some journalists to jail, as many dictators around the world do, but I don't think he's going to be founding the Trump youth and requiring everybody to join it. Uh, that is just not the nature of his political movement. Um, fascist movements are usually openly anti-democratic, which actually uh, makes them uh, in some ways easier to spot and easier to oppose because they openly say parliamentary democracy is just bourgeois and is not in the interest of our people and so we should get rid of it. Um, uh, that is not what authoritarian populists around the world today are saying. They're painting themselves as true Democrats and that actually makes their appeal um, much more intricate and much deeper. And I think if we just call them fascists, we, we fail to recognize this. And the third important thing is that whether we like it or not, Donald Trump has managed to build a genuinely multiracial coalition, right? He was competitive in the 2020 elections because he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white voter group, including uh, African-Americans and Asian-Americans and especially Hispanics. And if we call him uh, a fascist or some people are saying a white supremacist, um, without thinking too much, then it gives rise to a false hope, which is that as demographic changes continue to happen in the US population, people like Trump just won't be able to win. Uh, but that's wrong, as we're seeing in Brazil, where Bolsonaro was able to win, even though it's a majority non-white country. And as we're seeing in uh, the great expansion of so-called people of color voting for the Republican Party in the last few years. So um, I'm not against drawing certain parallels with the history of the Weimar Republic. And you didn't do that. But a lot of people in the discourse are doing that. I don't like this tendency to, to say Trump is a fascist, because while it nicely expresses animus against him, and I too deeply dislike him, I don't think it actually helps us to think clearly and to confront the, the danger. It's a nice way of moving into uh, Hugh Maguire's question. Hugh has a question about class politics and uh, Trump's coalition. My, my issue is this. The people who support Trump 
by and large, are lower working class people. These are the people who were downsized and outsourced and technology just eliminated their jobs. And they went from having living good lives, uh, working in factories, steel workers and automobile workers and uh, coal miners and on and on, to uh, uh, at best uh, getting a job at McDonald's. Uh, and what was most scary about that is that nobody cared. We, we laughed uh, that uh, many of these people in the Midwest were more concerned about how their kids did on their basketball team than how they were doing academically. Um, and, and we just ignored that massive suffering. And those are the people who are joining these right-wing groups and, and voting for these Republicans. And it's a, it's a scary thing, but I think they have a legitimate grievance. Democracy is not working for working class people. And we have to think about that. It does fine for the upper middle class. And, and this country was set up to benefit the top 30%, but uh, uh, it, it, it's doing nothing for the 70% below that. Thank you. So, so as we're talking about Richard and I are both immigrants, but we're obviously both uh, quite privileged immigrants, right? People who came here for education or for a job um, with a lot of opportunity. I'm struck by what kinds of people I know in the United States and what kinds of people I don't know in the United States. And I'm struck by um, how my friends and acquaintances and professional colleagues think about the country. You know, we could all, we can all be self-critical about the extent to which we have uh, ethnically and religiously diverse group of uh, friends and acquaintances and colleagues, but actually uh, I'm struck by just how diverse this country has now become, including in its upper echelons. And I've had the great luck over the last two decades to become good friends with people from all over the world, with all kinds of backgrounds. Um, so I think actually America is often doing better on that front that we like to acknowledge. And that's one piece of optimism that I really advocate in, in my last book. One of the reasons why I think we have made more progress in building an ethnically and religiously diverse democracy than many people say. At the same time, I'm struck by the fact that after the 20 years in this country, I barely know anybody who doesn't have a college degree. I barely know anybody who doesn't have a college degree from an elite university. I barely know anybody who doesn't have a postgrad degree. And when I listen to how many of my oh-so-enlightened friends talk about uh, the average American, about the average citizen of this country, it is often full of deep disdain uh, and, and sense of superiority. And that exists a little bit everywhere. It exists in Britain, which has a deep class system, it exists in Germany in a certain kind of set of people. But it's somehow harsher in the United States, the ease with which you can say, the reason why this jury came to the wrong conclusion is that the average American is just a bigot. Um, that to me is, is really, really striking. Um, and so I think that's a substantial problem. It's not good to feel like that towards your fellow human beings. I think it is a kind of anti-democratic attitude because perhaps logically you can believe in democracy while thinking that most people are idiots and bigots. But sociologically, it'll be hard to sustain that belief for uh, in democracy for a long time, if that's how you feel about them. Um, but it is also uh, a real electoral problem. And the, the number one piece of advice I have for Democrats, if they want to win in 2024, and I think it's very important that they win in 2024, given that the alternative is likely to be Donald Trump or somebody like that, is that they cannot have an instinctive dislike of a country and of the average voter if they want to be able to win against Trump. They also need to have policies that actually help uh, downwardly mobile people in the Midwest and so on. That's not all of Trump's voter base, but it's a significant segment of it. 
uh, we need to actually do a good job on the economy. We need to be able to give people hope that they're going to have uh, a decent livelihood and the children are going to have a decent livelihood and so on. But the first step to get permission to speak and to actually be able to be taken seriously with those proposals is to stop uh, sitting in judgment of the average American in the way that so many of my own friends do. Laurie, explain why you feel pessimistic about the next election. Uh, basically, what I said, that uh, the, the majority of the country can be progressive, uh, but we have to win like 53% of the vote to get, we're not represented uh, fairly in Congress nor in the uh, state legislatures. We elected Biden. They're adjusting their uh, the southern states so much that we don't have, it's not fair, I complain. <laughs> I think it's fair, and I think you're, you're right in important ways. A couple of thoughts are important for you here. So one is that we've gone through a cycle of redistricting in which Democrats both had more power than in former cycles of redistricting because they actually did reasonably well at the state level in 2020. And we're much more ruthless about gerrymandering themselves. And so according to most analyses, uh, the country is now more deeply gerrymandered than it was in the past, but it's no longer going to give a partisan lean to the Republican Party because we've well, everybody's gerrymandered at this point, right? Now, that's actually a bad thing because it means that most members of Congress don't worry about the general election. They worry about the primary. And that means that the incentive is just to play to the base and by the time the general election rolls around, your vote is useless in most count in most uh, districts because, you know, it's a district that so heavily leans Democrat or so heavily leans Republican. There's kind of no point turning out to vote on that date anyway. So that's a deep problem. But but at least in terms of the partisan unfairness, we've actually made progress relative to a few years ago. Now, when it comes to the electoral college, there is at the moment uh, some lean towards the Republican Party. Um, but I think we have a choice here. The first is to uh, complain, for example, about the composition of the Senate and say it overrepresents states in which Republicans have a majority and so on. And we can complain about the nature of the Senate until we're blue in the face, but it's never going to change um, because having each state have two senators is a fundamental part of the American settlement from the very beginning. And we can give Puerto Rico uh, an option for statehood as they should have, we can make to see a state, that would still be the case. So what's part of the solution here? Well, I'm sorry, but at some point the Democratic Party is going to start to have to uh, play by the rules as they are, whether they're fair or not. And part of that is to try and win in those states that Barack Obama was able to carry in 2008 and 2012. We shouldn't give up on Iowa. We shouldn't give up on Ohio. We shouldn't give up on Montana. We've been able to win those places and we need to win uh, and appeal to those countries in a way where we can win there. I have to cede the floor to uh, this person called Patricia Duff, who organized this whole thing. Patricia, your question, and I give you the mic as well, because we're almost out of time. Thank you so much. You guys are astounding. And we had so many questions. They came in through the email. They've come in on the chat wall. But there was something in your couple things in your book that I think are really important to touch upon because they're kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people. One is the idea, your idea of embracing our patriotism in a certain way versus nationalism. And the other I, the other thing that you talk about, which I think is really interesting, is how you deal with identity, because there's so much uh, about identity politics in our country today. Could Do you mind going into that, please? 
Yeah, of course. So we, we start talking a little bit about patriotism, but to me, as I was saying, it's 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 sort of double-edged sword or two-sided coin or a half-domesticated animal, which is to say that it can set people against each other in terrible ways. It can say, you know, you over there are not a real American for, for some kind of reason. That allows us real Americans to treat you really badly. So we should never uh, forget how dangerous it can be. But the right response to that I think, is to uh, cultivate a helpful, a healthy notion of patriotism, one in which we say precisely because people are always going to identify themselves to a large extent by their ethnicity, by their religion, uh, by the political commitments, like being a vegan or whatever it may be, the moral commitments, we also need something that unites us. It's fine to define yourself by all of those things, but we also should define ourselves as Americans because that's what allows us to have solidarity with each other. Um, and that patriotism, I think, should be based on, on the civic traditions of a constitution, but also on, on our shared uh, everyday culture. So, so that's my sort of stance on, on patriotism. On identity, I will say two things. The first is, I'm starting to say this right now, you know, people in a diverse democracy in a, in a free society are always going to play a lot of uh, attention to their identity. And that's a good thing. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we should encourage them also to build connective tissue. We should encourage them to discover what they have in common. And I get very worried when uh, key social and political institutions, when schools and universities try to encourage people to say, uh, you are completely defined by your descriptive identity. That is the most important thing about you. And it makes communication with others really difficult. The only thing you can do is to defer to each other. You can never understand each other. Um, I get really worried when in some elite private schools in New York and in D.C., you now have teachers coming in uh, when kids are 10 or 8 or 6 and say, we're going to split you up by identity group. And the black kids are going to go over there and the Asian kids are going to go over there and the Hispanic kids are going to go over there and the white kids go over there. Because that primes the worst parts of our groupishness. That's a really bad way of building mutual understanding and, and solidarity. And by the way, I get really concerned when we talk about politics in general as though demography were destiny, and as though uh, America was about to become majority minority. The category of people of color to me subsumes so many different people on such an arbitrary basis that we should be very, very careful about using it. Uh, the idea, for example, that somebody who might have European royal descent on one end and uh, Indian Brahmin descent on the other end and have parents who are uh, very affluent professionals, but this person somehow is metaphysically in the same category as a descendant of slaves whose ancestors have been horribly mistreated for many, many generations, uh, simply obscures as much about reality uh, as, it, as it reveals. Um, and so I think we should build a society in which we have general solidarity with each other, general mutual understanding, in which people will always give importance to their uh, religious and uh, cultural and to some extent ethnic groups, but in which some of those categories of groups come to have less importance, not because we ignore their importance, but because we actually have been able to uh, eradicate some of the injustices now that now exist and inspire people to make more connections with each other. Astonishing. No, it's just a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I, I'm so pleased to have two naturalized American citizens telling us about our American democracy, that tells you something right there. Uh, so thank you so much. Richard, you did a phenomenal job. Yasha, you're always brilliant. I can't wait for your next book. Everybody should go out and buy this one. 
Um, so thank you so much. We we'll hope you come back. Um, and please, um, if you can, if you're in the Hamptons, we've got on July 23rd, a documentary, Navalny, which is very timely right now. We don't know where Navalny is in prison in, in Russia. He'll be, uh, we'll have a in conversation with the director and Alec Baldwin there. And in September, we'll, we'll go back to our full schedule. We will have Alan Blinder, the former vice chair of the Fed, and another great economist, Mohamed El Arian, on economy and, the, and inflation, and a lot of other interesting conversations. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. And thank you, Yasha. Thank you, Richard. Really was outstanding. Thank you so much.